Good morning, this is Steve Coleman, and we're continuing our series today on the book of Philippians. Last week, Julie covered chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. This week, we're going to finish chapter 1. I don't know if you remember, if you're old enough to, the protests for democracy in Beijing, China in 1989. One of the iconic images from that was a man who stood in front of a row of tanks that were trying to advance, blocking their way. The media dubbed him the Tank Man because he was anonymous. After a short while, the crowd dragged him away and uh, he disappeared. His fate is unknown. During that protest for democracy, the students occupied Tiananmen Square in Beijing. The military moved in. On June 3, the incident happened. The man, seemingly came from nowhere, stepped in front of a row of tanks moving in and blocked their way. Even as they tried to maneuver around them, he kept getting in front and created a standoff for a short while. His picture became an icon for those protests. His actions appear a little frightening, even when you know the context. What made him do that? Exactly what was he thinking? Did he expect them not to run him over? Well, this morning, Paul's going to make some statements that seem just as strange at first read as the actions of the tank man. In a letter that's read more often than others, it's easy to read some of Paul's statements in Philippians without fully understanding what he's trying to say. But before we read the text, let's begin in prayer. Lord, we pray as we look at your word this morning that you would help us understand what we're reading, that you would change our hearts because of your word. In your name, amen. All right, we'll read in Philippians chapter 1, back a little bit, maybe in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sakes. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for all your progress and joy in the faith so that your pride in Christ Jesus may be abundant because of me by my coming to you again. Well, if you hunger for radical Christianity, here it is. You don't have to join a commune or do open-air preaching on the streets of San Francisco. Just wrap your head around Paul's statement. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul indicated that the idea of living for or in Christ would mean more fruit from his labor and is more needful for the Philippians for him to stay around. But if you look at that, the statement means his living, his life 
in his mind, had nothing to do with what he was going to get out of it. Everything he thinks about life is connected to the idea that living is to work for Christ, is to think about Christ, is to worship Christ, and providing benefit and blessings to others. That Christ becomes the first thought of the day and the last thought before he closed his eyes for sleep. We have read words like these so many times that we don't hear how odd they sound. Living for Paul is all about what happens for Christ. So, because of that, as Julie talked about last week, he can sit in jail while others preach Christ out of selfish ambition. And his reaction? He's happy that Christ is being proclaimed. He wants to stay alive, he said, so that the Philippians will have more joy in their faith. Has nothing to do with him or whatever benefit he gets. We're not used to this kind of thinking. All the more reason we need to read and study verses like these because we have to see the truth of God and have it affect our own thinking. Then he says, and to die is gain. I don't know about you. My first thought with death is always kind of an idea of loss. But Paul turns that on its head and indicates that death is gain. Sometimes when someone dies, we say they've gone home to heaven. And it's this same concept that Paul is bringing up again. The Philippian believers are citizens of heaven. So all death means is that they get into the presence of God in heaven. Well, we've got more to cover. We're going to have to move on to the next section in which Paul instructs his leaders how living for Christ should look. We'll read in verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And this too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer on his behalf, experiencing the same conflict in which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. So the first idea he has here is conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. What do you think it means to walk worthy? Paul gives us a little more insight in Colossians 1. He writes, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Walking worthy certainly means pleasing the Lord, doing things that will bring a spiritual benefit to others, and getting close to God. An additional dimension, I think, is implied, and that is doing these things consistently. Thinking of that, uh, I'm reminded of the guards at the tomb of the unknown soldier. I don't know if you've had a a chance to go down and and see them there, but they're renowned for their 24-7, 365-day vigil guarding the tomb, regardless of weather, And they're also renowned for the fierceness toward anyone 
who tries to cross over the rail and the, the guardrails or to show a, or who show a lack of respect for the fallen soldiers there. It's a serious job, a sacred trust performed by a serious society of individuals that could be considered kind of a ceremonial special forces. They defend the honor of the sacrifice symbolized by those in the graves. These guards represent the best of the best the army can offer. It is the third least awarded badge in the United States Army behind the military horseman badge and the astronaut badge. And it is the only military badge that can be revoked for any action that brings disrespect to the tomb. In other words, they're required to walk worthy of the honor of guarding these graves. Paul is presenting a similar idea. Believers to walk worthy of the gospel of Christ. It means having the consistent attitude of to live is Christ. Paul's expecting that the Philippian believers and also we readers of this uh, letter should not live at a level that's beneath our theology, our beliefs. In other words, what we believe about God and what we believe about his promises and what we have and our citizenship, then we should be living at that same level. We're called to be children of God and we ought to live up to that name. Paul went on to say, uh, second point, not just that we need to walk worthy of Christ, but secondly, we need to work as a unified group. He goes on to say, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul didn't know whether he would live or die. He did not know whether he would stay incarcerated or not. He might get a chance to see them again or not. But that didn't matter to Paul. What mattered was that they stand firm, striving together in unity. You see, Paul saw the church as a team sport. So it wasn't like, well, here's somebody over here and he's studying and being a good Christian and so on. Uh, he saw, and other people were elsewhere, he saw the church as a single body, as a body made up of individuals with their own unique combination of spiritual gift, personality, experiences that had something to contribute to the body. And that as a body, they could stand firm. And so it's important to notice this idea of unity. And let's talk about what unity is and what it's not that he's talking about here. He's not, unity is not necessarily unanimity. In other words, everybody thinking the same thing or agreeing about everything. Boy, you, that's nearly impossible as long as you have two or more people. It's not about uniformity everyone acting the same way. It's not about having the same personality or even liking everybody. What it does mean is harmony, 
a decision to work together, a choice to cooperate over the essentials. And the essential here for Paul is operating in one spirit and striving with one mind for one thing, the gospel. The picture here is like the unity that comes with a typical family. Disagreements may exist between individuals, but there's an underlying identification as one family standing together against external threats or a crisis. You know the classic situation of a big brother who torments his younger brother. However, when bullies pick on his brother in the schoolyard, he jumps to defend him saying, hey, you can't beat him up. He's my brother. Well, such were the five Sullivan brothers from Waterloo, Iowa. They were World War II sailors of Irish-American descent who enlisted in the Navy on the condition that they would all serve together. They were assigned to the light cruiser USS Juno, and the worst happened when they were all killed in action when the cruiser was sunk in November 1942. Feeling that family bond, they insisted on serving together. Paul wanted the Philippians to feel the bond of the Spirit in their one calling to stand firm in the faith. That unity was a critical dimension in Paul's mind. So first of all, was walking worthy. Second of all, standing firm in unity. Third, don't be intimidated by opposition. Let's read that little bit. And in no way be alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and this too from God. He wants them to let the love of God cast out all fear. You know, throughout Scripture, there is story after story about how the individual or small group were not intimidated and were cared for by God. You have Gideon's small army of 300. You have Daniel's defying the order of, uh, to not pray to God and end up getting thrown in the lion's den, where again, God took care of them. Then you have the three Israelites not moved by peer pressure to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's statue, and they were saved out of the furnace. You had the judge Ehud, who by himself went in and killed the Philistine ruler Eglon. In the context of the book of Philippians, Paul stresses the metaphor of citizenship. They are all citizens of heaven. We are all citizens of heaven. And just like their Roman citizenship provided more benefits and was more glorious than what the Macedonian citizenship offered, because it was backed by all the might of Rome, the Philippian believers' heavenly citizenship is a more substantial identification than their citizenship in Philippi. Their heavenly citizenship was backed by an infinitely stronger God. They had nothing to fear. All God fears through the Old Testament that understood that could take those actions and not be intimidated by opponents. The fourth one, 
to perhaps the most striking aspect to standing fast. Paul talks about receiving and enduring suffering. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer on his behalf, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. It has been granted to us to believe and to suffer. We do know the truth of that. It's elsewhere in the scripture. All who live godly lives in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Jesus himself said, don't be surprised when men hate you. They hated me before you. But there's more. This word granted is derived from the word for grace. So Paul's saying suffering has been graciously given to us. It has been bestowed upon us. We've been given the privilege of suffering. It's like Paul saying, God's doing you a favor. He's going to let you suffer. Well, along with you, it, it probably makes me want to say, uh, can I not have that favor? Can God give that gift to someone else and not to me? I promise I'll work extra hard at everything else. Well, why would Paul say that? Well, God sees suffering as different than we see suffering. To us, it is something to be avoided. It's bad. It's harmful to our growth, we feel. We hate to see anyone suffer, including ourselves. But what the Bible is saying is quite a different way of thinking. And that is, if you suffer well and suffer for the right reasons, it's a privilege. We have trouble getting our minds around this. But this gift of suffering will do more to build up our lives and make us strong and bless us than just about anything else. All right, let me illustrate that by talking about popcorn. You know, with the right ingredients and temperature, many great things come out of a kitchen. One of the more surprising and tasty is popcorn. You see, most grains, when the heat is applied, just sit there and do nothing, burn. However, po the popcorn kernel has just the right kind of shell and the right amount of starch and moisture. When you apply heat to it, the shell cracks open and the starch forms the popcorn shapes we know and love. You know, just like popcorn, suffering will do that. It transforms us, it changes us, it enlarges our life, and it reveals the work that God has done in our lives and makes us a blessing to others. The book of Philippians engages us with hard, deep truths as long as we don't skim over them. Paul goes on in chapter 3, after stating again that his goal was to gain Christ, he explain, exclaims that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul wants to suffer the right way so that he can be like his Lord. Suffering produces a number of benefits that we don't think about immediately. Number one, it makes us long for heaven. Another one, it produces patience. We learn that in the book of James. 
It makes us sensitive to others who are suffering. And of course, like all of these, if we suffer the right way for the right reasons, it reduces the grip of sin on our lives. We have looked at Paul's urging that the Philippian believers stand firm by pursuing conduct that's worthy of the gospel, by working together as one for the faith of the gospel, by not being intimidated by the opposition, and by suffering well. All of these are ongoing efforts. You and I cannot just do them once and check, them, check off the box. It takes dogged persistence. You know, I don't, I don't know. They may still be on the market, but when I was young, there was a toy. It was an inflatable character about three feet tall. The primary feature of this toy was that it had a couple of pounds of sand sewn into the very bottom of it. With this weighting, when you punched the toy and you punched it down, it almost immediately popped right back up. It was ready for more. No matter what you did to it, it would pop up standing tall once again. I have a feeling that's the kind of stand firm that Paul was encouraging the Philippians toward. Ideally, standing firm without faltering is the ideal. But as we learn and grow in Christ, we're going to have our uh, starts and our failures. But to stand firm as the Bible encourages us to do day after day, we need to be like that toy. Whatever challenges we face in walking worthy, acting in unity, facing opposition, and in suffering, we have to be ready to sort of roll with the punches, and but bounce back in God's grace. A failure today doesn't mean failure of the mission. It should mean another step of growth because we are citizens of heaven and have our, our ultimate home there. These are hard sayings and they're not mastered in one session. I encourage you to read the book of Philippians and uh, over and over again during the week uh, between these messages and really try to understand the mentality that Paul is trying to communicate and so that we can all change and grow and become more like Christ. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and the chance to read your word. We thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus, and the salvation he procured for us through his death on the cross. Dismiss us now with your blessing. In your name, amen. Well, thanks for meeting with us this week, and blessings to you. We hope you have a good week, and see you next time.